Gracious Father, there is no one like you. You alone reign in the heavens. Your sovereignty is undeniable and unquestioned. You reign in all of your perfections over all that you have made. And we come before you now as we open your word and we lay our lives before you, asking that you would do with your word what you've designed to do in our lives. May your spirit guide us in the truth. May he give us understanding. May your word pierce into the unpierceable places. May it affect change in our lives. May we be hearers of your word. And may we then be doers of your word. May this time and these words, this portion of your your completed word to us, be effective for your glory. We want to be more like our Savior We want to treasure your grace more because we've been together and in your word together today. And so we turn to you for help, knowing that you alone can accomplish change in our lives. You alone can shape and mold us and fashion us in opposition to the conformity to the world through the renewing of our mind. You can transform us to look like Christ. We thank you for the work that you've been doing in our lives through our study of Matthew And we ask that you would continue that work even in this new portion of your word that we'll study for these next several weeks. We submit ourselves to you now in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the big idea overarching Psalm number one, the very first of these Psalms is this. If you're taking notes this morning, you might want to jot down this grand theme that covers the first Psalm. Every life is lived on one of two paths leading to one of two destinations. Every life is lived on one of two paths leading to one of two destinations. There is no life that is ever lived. No human being has lived apart from these two paths leading to these two destinations. There are only two paths and there are only two destinations. We've come here this morning with a variety of walks of life. We've entered into this time. We're sitting in green chairs in the theater at Kingsburg High School, and we are diverse. We're diverse in ethnicity. We're diverse in our family relationships. We're diverse in our our economic structure. We're diverse in our social status. We're diverse in our industry and what we do as vocation. We're diverse. There's a lot of difference represented here this morning. But there are only two people on two paths in two, two ends, two culminations to life. There are only two ways and they end in only two destinations. That will become clear as we study this first psalm I trust this morning. And I, I trust that God will use it to help shape and mold us to better think of our lives and to live more appropriately for his glory. Before we see the proof that there is only two there are only two ways and they lead to only two eternal outcomes let's notice where we are in the bible uh, we have launched and we have dropped into uh, as if we were parachuting from 30,000 feet we are now launched down into the middle of nowhere as it were in our bibles we've dropped into the middle of our old testament we spend every week for the last 3 years almost without breaking, in the book of Matthew. So we, we're some, somewhat familiar with what's going on in the context of Matthew, but now we're in Psalms. 
We're in the Old Testament. We're in the Hebrew songbook. The Hebrews didn't walk around with a big PowerPoint screen walking in front of them with these lyrics up there, but they did have this. This was their songbook. This is what they sang. And now we are encountering this first of the Psalms. There are five books of Psalms. I don't know if you've noticed that in your reading. For many of you, I know this is devotional, familiar place. This is where you like to go. This is where we see God on display. We praise Him and we read the praises in our hearts resonate with the Psalms. But there are five books of the Psalms. The first book goes from the 1st to the 41st. The second book goes from the 42nd to the 72nd. The third book goes from the 73rd to the 89th Psalm. The fourth book goes from the 90th to the 106th Psalm. And the fifth book concludes this section we call the Psalms from the 107th to the 150th Psalm. There are seven noted authors in your Psalms. Seven people are referenced as the author of Psalms within this collection. And there are a myriad of Psalms that are, that are not given a, an author. We don't have any record of who penned these Psalms. So within the collection, we have at least seven authors, and no doubt many more, because of the anonymous Psalms that are included. This book of the Bible spans 900 years of composition. Uh, it's fascinating to consider that. I don't know if you have thought about this. We, we've been studying Matthew, and Matthew penned his, his document in some reasonable span of time. The Holy Spirit is guiding and directing him. He is recording the life of Christ. He is an evangelist to us by recording the ministry and the steps of Christ. The Psalms are compiled and written over a span of hundreds of years. So we have Psalms that are from an ancient time in Israel's history, and we have Psalms that are from the most modern in the Old Testament history. It's a fascinating collection of songs. And it's a fascinating testimony to the greatness of God as He accomplishes His revelation to His people and preserves it for His people. We're holding something that is thousands of years old when we look at these psalms. And it took hundreds of years for them to be compiled. It just blows our mind. We're, for most of us, we've grown up in the United States. And the United States' ancient history just isn't that ancient because we just haven't been around that long. So this, this pushes us back. This exposes um, a, a depth of history that, that is challenging to us. And I trust it, it wells our hearts up with gratitude for God's preservation of his word given to us now, even in our own language. Many of these psalms would be sung on the way to the temple. They were called songs of ascent as they went up to the temple. The Jewish people would sing these psalms. I had I talked to David this morning as we were praying together and, 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 and lamented the fact that we did not think ahead enough to have psalms be our songs for this time in the psalms. Um, there are a number of tunes that you're familiar with that, that sing these psalms. These 150 are broken up and a number of them are put to music that's even relatively modern. Some of them are ancient. Some of them are, are very modern to us. These were songs to be sung. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but you've tried to put your own tune to one of these psalms. You'll find it uh, challenging. I, I think you'll find it humorous. Uh, this morning, I gave an effort at singing Psalm 1 in the shower, to which I quickly uh, resigned. This was not effective. 
Not only that, the little window in the shower room was open, which meant my neighbors across the way could possibly have heard me trying to sing Psalm 1, which would have been doubly disgraceful and not advantageous to my relationship with them for the sake of the gospel. Okay? These are real songs, and they are precious to, um, to us, should be precious to us. Another trait that's familiar to us in the Psalms and a reason that we love to go here. I don't know about you, but when we sit down with the scriptures and perhaps we have an extra opportunity to open the Bible, one of the most common places that we turn is to this book of Psalms. And the reason for that is because in these Psalms, we find the the treasures, the treasures of our life as God's people often right on the surface. One of my favorite professors at the Master's Seminary and, and a true a mentor in my life and a discipler, Dr. Irv Busenitz, taught me Hebrew uh, one of the times that I was trying to accomplish my studies in Hebrew. Uh, Dr. Busenitz was, was so helpful in bringing us to the Psalms and showing us, as he would put it, the gems of theology are lying on the surface. For the most part, we would dig deeply to find gems. But in the Psalms, it's as if we are, we're just simply able to pick up diamonds off the surface. They're just laying around for us to see and to treasure and to, to glean. And, and that's an encouraging place for us to study. Because truths are spoken of. Wisdom is given in such a way that's very attainable to us. And very familiar to us as well. That's because these were very practical pieces of literature. They were to be sung. They were to be understood. They were to have rhyme and reason, if you will, for the purpose of memorization. And so we enjoy the benefit of this book of the Psalms. So with this ancient document before us, where are we in the first one? What's true about this first Psalm so that we can get to that main idea and see it clearly that every life that is lived is lived on one of two paths leading to one of two destinations. Well, this psalm and the second psalm are probably together. This is probably Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Many would believe are coupled together as the the entryway to the psalms. So the Psalter opens with Psalm 1 and 2, almost like a doorway to the rest of the psalms. We'll study Psalm 2 next when we gather together on the 22nd. And we'll find that they they complement each other. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. There are a number of kinds of psalms. Many of you have read lament psalms. You've read imprecatory psalms where you're kind of wondering if you should really pray for your enemies to have their teeth shattered out. Um, you, you don't know what to do with that. Those are, those are a kind of psalm. That's an imprecatory psalm. Singing about God's victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. This psalm is a wisdom psalm. Gleaning from the wisdom literature, which the psalms are a part of the writings, which include Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, books that we know are wisdom literature for us. This psalm represents a wisdom psalm. It speaks of Proverbs or wisdom given to us in poetry. There are two people represented in this psalm. If we take a flyby of what's here, two people are represented. We see first there is the blessed man in verse number one, and there is the wicked that are represented in verse number four. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see again that there is the wicked and the righteous categories of people. So there are are two people represented, and there are two pictures utilized. 
For one picture in the middle, in the second stanza of Psalm 1, we find a tree that's planted by water source and produces fruit. And in the second picture, we find chaff, which is at the threshing floor of a barn after the harvest of wheat. So two pictures are used of these two different people groups. And finally, we see two different promises. For one, there is the promise of blessing represented in the very first word of this psalm. And for the other, there is the promise of judgment and destruction coming from the holy God of heaven. So we have two people, two pictures, and two promises if we were to give a general structure to what we find in this psalm. Now, with that kind of structure sitting on us and helping us to come to the psalm, I want to present the obvious for your consideration this morning. In fact, I just want to go through Psalm 1 with you breaking it into two major sections, looking at the righteous man and the wicked man, and basically gathering the gems that are lying on the surface. Let's just consider what's here. Let's consider these words carefully. Let's marvel and be challenged by and be reminded with the wisdom of Psalm number 1. Every life that is lived is lived on one of two paths, leading to one of two eternal paths destinations. So let's consider observations regarding the righteous man first. So if you're taking notes, the righteous man comes first. Let's consider what is spoken of as truth about the righteous man. The psalmist begins, the anonymous psalmist begins, blessed is the man who walks, who stands, who sits, not, but his delight is in. So there's a, there's a lot described about this man in a very, a very short span of verses. First of all, and most obviously, he is blessed. The righteous man, the one who is righteous in the sight of God, is blessed. Fascinating word for us because it's so familiar to us in our study of Matthew. This is the very same concept that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse number 3, in what we know so well as the Beatitudes. They're the kingdom norms. They are the the character qualities that describe the people of the kingdom of Christ. The same word is used here. Blessed is not mere happiness. It's not some kind of giddiness or some emotional state for the believer. The righteous one is described here as being blessed. That is a deep abiding sense of the pleasure of God. Something that cannot be gained in any other way. Something that is only given from heaven to those who are counted righteous. The righteous man is the blessed man. Interestingly enough, in the, in the Hebrew language, there are two identical words used at the beginning of this sentence. In fact, it's, it sounds like blessed, blessed the man. Blessed, blessed the man. Stacking up the same word, duplicating that same word, provides emphasis and it it highlights the blessing that is true for the righteous man. It would be as if the psalmist is saying, oh, the blessednesses of the man. It's, It's an overwhelming consideration that the righteous man is first marked as a blessed man. He is a blessed man because of what is true in the remainder of verse number one. And let's see this second observation about this righteous man. He is a blessed man, but he's also a separated man. He's a separated man. In verses 1 and 2, we find first the negative separation of his life. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This righteous man who is identified with the blessing from heaven is a separated man. He is clearly defined. And I wonder this morning if we are here as defined individuals. Because this man, this blessed man, this one who receives blessing directly from heaven in his life is very clearly defined. First negatively, from what he is not associated with, where he does not receive insight and wisdom and counsel. And then secondly, where he does receive wisdom, insight and counsel. I don't believe that the psalmist intends a progression here in verse number one of walk, stand, sit. Perhaps you've heard that used as a description here in what is happening. The reason I don't think that this is first a description of, well, you could be walking. That's the least that's the least level of worldliness. So you walk in the counsel of the wicked. But then if you are sucked into walking, you would become Uh, very likely a stander in the way of sinners. So you might be walking along. That's the minimal amount of influence. Perhaps you've heard it described this way. Standing amongst them would be more of an influence. And then finally, sitting in the seat of scoffers would be the most established place of contamination. So you either are walking along the way with them or you perhaps you've already you've come to the level where you're standing with them. And then the most severe case would be sitting with them. I don't think that's what the psalmist is portraying here because the wise man, the the blessed man, the righteous man doesn't do any of those. I believe what is better understood in verse number one is that those descriptions of walk, stand and sit represent all of life. Deuteronomy chapter six speaks on the positive of this same kind of description. You remember this, parents. Deuteronomy chapter six commands you and commands the nation of Israel who had received the word of God from Moses to translate that word back, to deliver that word back to your children. And the description that's used there is as you walk along the way, as you sit in your place, as you rise, as you lay down. The idea there is no matter what's happening in life, no matter what the circumstances are, you should be active in presenting the truths of God's word to your children. That's, that's familiar to us. I believe the same is true here on the negative side in Psalm number one. This righteous man is described as being blessed because he is negatively separated in every facet of his life from the influence, from the voice, from the communication of those who stand opposed to God. That becomes clear in the contrast of his separation in verse number two. Simple three letter word, but sets apart. Verse number one from verse number two and establishes a contrast for us this morning. This righteous man is a blessed man. He receives favor from heaven. He has a stability and a peace and joy that comes from heaven because he does not give himself to the counsel, the influence and the input of the world around him. But in contrast, he delights in the law of the Lord and on his law This man meditates day and night. Let's be careful to observe what we find laying on the surface of verse number two. There is a defining feature of the one who is most aware of the blessing of heaven. The one who is counted righteous and receives the blessings of righteousness from heaven. It is separation from and it's separation to 
His delight is in the law of the Lord. It is a delight that is the recognizable, consuming passion of this blessed, righteous man. This person, this individual, this man or lady who is identified and described here in this first psalm, this wisdom psalm that would launch us into the rest of these psalms, is defined by separation from the world's influence and communication, from the world's message speaking in, whether it's along the way or whether it's standing about or whether it's sitting down. There is a resistance to that and a delight, a pursuit, a passion for the Torah of Yahweh. Probably in your translations, for many of you, if you have the ESV translation, you'll see the word Lord is in all caps, all capital letters. Anytime you see in your Old Testament the word Lord in all capital letters, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. In fact, it doesn't have vowels. The scribes took that word and that name so so, um, so seriously that when they wrote it in the recording of Scripture, when they would copy the Bible, so they're copying down a page, if they went with their pen and wrote the letters for Yahweh, they would discard the pen. That quill would never be used again because it had written down the covenant name of God. It's the Torah. It's the law. It's the communication from Yahweh that is the delight of this blessed and righteous man. Let's pause for a moment to consider this. The law of God is a confusing thing to us often on this side of the cross. In fact, we're reading in in Romans right now, and we're reading some difficult things. We're reading about the law, and about the Mosaic law as in contrast to the the law of Christ, and, and salvation by faith, and Paul's communicating about the old way being insufficient, and faith being necessary for salvation. So we find often the law to be a negative part of our New Testament description. Paul is arguing against those who would try to wield the law or shape and and abuse the law to make it attainable for their own righteousness. Jesus would attack those who believed that they were actually fulfilling the law in their own works. He would say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law cannot save in and of itself. It's a tutor to grace. All of these things leave us with the idea that the law is insufficient in some way. And that would lead us to a misunderstanding of what is happening in verse number 2. It is the Torah of Yahweh that is the delight, the passion, the food, the joy of this blessed man who is righteous in the sight of God. I don't believe that the word used here for law restricts us simply to the Pentateuch. The first five books, the Torah, in the Jewish understanding, but rather to communication from Yahweh. It is his word that is the delight of this blessed individual's life. We see that further described in the second part of verse number two. On his law, he meditates day and night. Notice how this stanza unfolds. This man is blessed. And he is described in his blessing with a negative separation and a positive separation. He is separated from communication from those who are wicked, who are the enemies of God. And he is then secondly described as being separated to communication from God. He delights in it and he meditates upon it. Now the word meditation 
This is a, an important one for us from an Old Testament understanding. The word meditate, the Hebrew word that's translated for us, meditates, is actually the word that would be used for murmuring. Talking under your breath. So, so the idea of meditation has lost most of its Hebrew connotation for us as uh, 2010 readers and students of the word. Because for us, meditation is often, often unfortunately, connected to transcendental practices, right? It's something of emptying your mind so that you can be filled with what you should be filled with. It is quite the opposite in your Old Testament. And in Psalm number one, the separation of this blessed man who is righteous in the sight of God is that he meditates upon the law. He does not empty himself. He actually speaks to himself. He murmurs to himself every day throughout his day. He speaks the truth of the word, the law, the Torah of Yahweh to his own life. The blessed man is one who is having a running conversation with himself. All of you have been No doubt, you have either been embarrassed at being caught yourself or you have gleefully enjoyed the embarrassment of someone else who you caught talking to themselves. Um, Prior to having wireless or hands-free devices for our cell phones in the car, um, there would be the comic relief of seeing someone in their car who who was just talking to themselves, having a discussion. Uh, You drive along and you're looking at them and they're very intently talking away and there's nobody else in the car and you just want to slow down and just ride real parallel to them until they have to look over at you and just face the reality that you see them. I remember in school there would be those those few uh, junior high girls who were in a lot of transition stages and things were were awkward generally at that point for all of us, okay? I mean, I was 6'1", 120 pounds in eighth grade. It was bad. It was all awkward. But there were those girls in junior high who... If time seemed to lapse and there wasn't something entertaining them, they would resort to just talking to themselves. It was very strange. You'd see them just discussing something with themselves. And we would laugh and snicker at it. They would find out that we were laughing and they would cease from their talking um, for the most part. The Hebrew word here carries this not in an embarrassing sense at all, but in a reality for the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He's the one who speaks the truth of the word to his own life on a daily basis, day and night. When he's walking, when he's standing, when he's sitting, he's not receiving the counsel of the ungodly. Rather, he is receiving the counsel of God as he speaks what is his delight, the the Torah of Yahweh to his own existence. You see this? This righteous man is clearly defined as a blessed individual because he's a separated individual. And this has huge implications for us. For many of us, there are seasons in our life where we sense the blessing of God has been at some level removed. It's a dry season spiritually. We struggle. We sense that every step spiritually is is a difficult step. Do we speak the truth of his word to our own lives? Or do we allow the world, the culture, the society around us, the vehicles of communication around us to tell us life principles, to give us wisdom, to give us knowledge, to inform us? What is it, brothers and sisters, that informs your worldview this week? This is Sunday. We're heading into a new week. We don't know what God has intended for us this week. We don't know how he'll shape and mold us. We don't know what circumstances, joys, blessings, trials, suffering will come. 
What is it that will inform your perspective? What's the grid through which you will look at your life this week? If you're to enjoy blessing from heaven, no matter what God brings this week in your life, it will be because you resist receiving counsel from those who hate him and you delight and speak back to yourself counsel from the one who has redeemed you and who counts you as righteous. So this righteous man is a blessed man who is marked by his separation. I was reminded as I was studying Psalm number one of one of the scripture memory passages from my youth. This one has never left in Joshua chapter one. Joshua is being commissioned for his work in leading the nation of Israel. You remember Moses has disobeyed. He's lost. He's forfeited his opportunity to go into the promised land. God promises that Joshua will be a faithful leader. The nation of Israel will not go without a leader before them. And these words are spoken to Joshua from God. This book of the law, this Torah, shall not depart from your mouth. Your mouth. Notice this. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your ways prosperous, and then you will have good success. So, the blessing connected to this righteous man is also directly connected to separation from information and communication from the wicked culture in which he exists, and separation to delighting in and speaking back to oneself the truths of God's word, the law of the Lord. Okay? These are the truths about this righteous man. Thirdly, he is not only blessed and separated, but he is also fruitful. Notice the picture. This is one that we understand. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. That's a delta. I don't know if you've noticed the plural there. It's not a stream of water. It's streams of water. This is a tree that's planted right in the middle of multiple water sources. I think we get this. I think the brothers out on the west side of the valley really get this. This is a tree that has all the water it could ever have. And because it has all the water, its seasons are predictable. Its fruitfulness is dependable. This individual is described, this righteous one who is blessed from heaven, who is separated from the world and unto the word, is described here with a picture of a tree. A tree that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. It doesn't die. In all that he does, he prospers. There is a steadfast fruitfulness to the life of this righteous and blessed man. And finally, this individual is known. He is a known man. He is a blessed man, a separated man. He is a fruitful man. And he is a known man. Notice what we, what we see in the final, the final verse of this psalm. The final two lines of this psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Let this be an encouragement to your hearts. I don't know what you've come here with this morning. It's difficult for this many people to be gathered and there not to be severe trials, suffering, doubt, discouragement present with us. Here's what's true about the one who is righteous before God. The one who receives blessing from God. He is a known man. Now, this sounds like something that, that is so elementary. Of course, God knows him. God is sovereign. He knows all things. He knows all people. There's nothing that is outside of the scope of his knowledge or his understanding. But this word for knowledge is something special to us. 
This is the same word that that Moses used when he wrote Genesis chapter four and verse one, that the man knew his wife. It is a euphemism for sexual union. This is an intimacy and a connection that is far beyond mere objective facts about another individual. This is knowledge that is connected in relationship. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 25. God knew about the suffering of Israel. He heard their cry and he knew. It is he experientially, he relationally is connected to the ones who are his own. So if you've come here this morning bearing heavy burdens, you're suffering, you're, you're doubting, you're discouraged, be encouraged from the song of the first, the first song in this book of songs that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He is intimately connected with your life. You are not left alone. You are not outside of his knowledge and his care. I believe the NIV translates this a little bit differently, the ESV, and gives it to us as watches over. That, that's, that's helpful. They're, they're trying to get us past the word no, which is so elementary in our vocabulary. God is actively involved in the lives of all who are these righteous ones. They are blessed. They are separated. They are fruitful. And they are known. Just gems lying on the ground for us to take from the first psalm this morning. There's wisdom to be gleaned from the surface here. God relates to one of two kinds of people with blessedness. There are only two kinds of people. Every life is lived on one of two paths with one of two destinations. And there is only one of those paths that receives blessing from heaven. It's this man, the righteous one. He's known, he's fruitful, he's separated, and he alone receives the blessing from heaven. He experiences that blessing through his devotion to the word and his separation from all other competing words. The message of the culture is left for the message of the king of heaven given to us in the pages of his law, the Torah of Yahweh. Every life that is lived is lived on one of two paths leading to one of two destinations. So that's the righteous man. Let's turn the page now or. Shift gears and let's look at the wicked man. Verse number four is the hinge of this psalm. The wicked are not so. Everything you've just studied in verses one, two, and three is going to be flipped over. And now it is not so for the wicked. The wicked do not receive blessing. They are not separated unto God. They are not fruitful for his glory. It is not true of the wicked. The truth about the wicked man that we find in these final verses is that he is worthless. The life of the wicked man is a worthless, vain existence. That's described in this picture. The second part of verse 4 says, But are like chaff that the wind drives away. This, I mean, Most of us haven't been out threshing this morning. At least I don't think so. Um, we are in the place where if it happens today, it probably happens somewhere near us, okay, in this ag world. These are both ag pictures, fruitfulness of a tree, threshing floor. Grain is brought in, it's harvested, it's cut down, and the threshers would throw it up in the air. There would be fanners who would be fanning because the grain, the kernels of grain, would be heavy enough that they would fall to the ground while all of the scrap that was around them would be blown away. This would keep happening, this process of manual labor. This is the description that the psalmist uses of the wicked life, of the life of the wicked ones. 
They are like the chaff. They are worthless. They are good for nothing. They are simply blown away, forgotten, done away with, without benefit. The kernel falls to the floor, but the wind drives the worthless chaff out of the threshing floor. So it is for the wicked who are not so. They are worthless. There is no value in their wickedness. And then in conclusion, the final stanza begins with the word therefore, which I know for many of you as as inductive students, you know the importance of that word. This is the culmination. This is the conclusion. Verses 5 and 6 are are kind of the cap of everything that's happened in verses 1 through 4. And so we conclude with these clear principles being seen. Not only is he worthless in verse number 4, but the wicked man is defenseless in verse number 5. He's defenseless. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of if an attacker comes, there's no defense. This is a much more serious kind of defenselessness. Because this man is seen as defenseless at the judgment seat before the God of heaven. He's got no lawyer. He's got no evidence. He's got nothing at all that would prove his innocence or would in any way make him right before the judge in the judgment. In verse number 5, this description, terrifying description, is given of the wicked. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's not talking about presence at the judgment. They'll be there. It means endurance. They will not stand up under the judgment, the scrutiny of the blazing, holy eyes of, of Jesus Christ. They will be exposed. They will not make it. They will have no defense to offer. The wicked one is described as worthless, like chaff that blows away, and defenseless in the presence of a holy God. They will have no one to stand in, no one to come to their aid, no one to provide for them a substitution for their punishment. For the wicked one who meets Christ in the judgment, there is no defense. And finally, we see, sadly, Verse number six, not only is this wicked man worthless and defenseless, but he is hopeless. Death is the only end for the wicked man who is along the wicked way. Verse number six says, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are only two groups of people. They're only on two paths and they're only ending in two destinations. And for the wicked ones, there is valueless living. There is defenselessness at the judgment. And there is hopelessness because death is coming. The broad road, Jesus says, leads to destruction. Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Only two people on only two paths leading to only two ends. You're either in the blessing or you're in the curse. This is the gateway to the Psalms. This is a song to be sung. Blessed is the man who separated from the world, separated unto God, fruitful in all that he does because of the grace of God pouring through him. But the wicked are not so. This speaks truth to us. We look at the wicked and say they are prosperous. They are accomplishing great things. They are valuable. In fact, I think I might want to have some of what they have. They have nothing. They are defenseless. And they are ultimately hopeless apart from some aid before they reach the judgment seat. So what are the implications from Psalm number one? How do we apply this psalm to our existence this morning? 
Always, always important for us to observe the scriptures, to interpret the scriptures, and to apply the scriptures. So here are a few thoughts for for our conclusion. Here are the implications, a few of them, that come from Psalm number one. Number one implication, there has only been one perfectly righteous man. Do you recognize that there has only been one individual who has earned the title of righteousness? We sang of him this morning. We listened to the song from Chris Tomlin in the offertory from 2 Corinthians 5.21. That was a song of scripture. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Only Jesus Christ represents the fullness of what is described in Psalm number 1 in this righteous man. There is only one who has earned the title of righteous. That means for all of us, there is a desperate need for a foreign righteousness to be applied to our lives. If these things are to be true, if we are to live in separation and delight in the law of God and meditate upon its truths and be fruitful and faithful, It will be because some other righteousness has granted to us access to power, grace, and strength in this week. We are apart from righteousness. And yet righteousness is the only place where blessings flow from heaven. Therefore, some other righteousness must be brought to us. Some foreign righteousness. Some righteousness that is, Paul would say, imputed. The balance sheets have to be redone. The debt has to be canceled and there has to be righteousness applied to that account to be in the presence of God, to stand in the judgment, to be known by God, to be fruitful for God, to be separated unto God and to be blessed by God. So Jesus Christ is the culmination of all that we're studying in Psalm number one. If your if your end of Psalm number one is I'm going to gut it out and be blessed this week. You will be sorely disappointed. You need grace and I need grace to receive blessings from heaven, to live separated lives, to be fruitful for God's glory and to be known and watched over by him. That grace comes only through Jesus, the blood of his covenant, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, his standing in for us and his resurrection, which provides eternal life to us. He's the only way we experience anything described in verses 1 through 3 or in the middle of verse number 6. Don't miss Christ as the end of the first psalm. All of your Bible points to the cross. Whether it's before the cross, looking in anticipation to the cross, or looking back in reference to the cross. So, Thirdly, in conclusion, submission to Psalm number one leads to a lifestyle described in Psalm number one. We must pursue these qualifications for the blessings that are described here. Do we actively pursue a life that is marked by separation? Or is that idea, even in and of itself, an uncomfortable thought to us? Do we embrace the folly of the wicked around us in their counsel? Or are we more recognizable because of our conformity to the world than we are for the renewing of our mind and our transformed life in Christ. Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Do we meditate upon it? 
Do we do so to the, to the clear, clear separation from competing voices? Let's be practical. Is this description match up with just the, the sheer amount of information that we take in? We live in an information age that has never been, never been paralleled. So when we look at our day, how much of our day is us receiving either from another or through our own mouth the law of God as our meditation and our delight versus how much is being spoken into us from some other source, from some other wisdom, from some other faulty, faulty word, some other law granted to us by another. And all of this leads us to evaluation. Finally, the implication is we must evaluate our lives because every life is lived on one of two paths leading to one of two destinations. Either righteousness imputed to us and lived out by us through the power of the Holy Spirit, an end of favor and love and affection and eternal life in the presence of God, or wickedness and the life of the wicked being vanity, worthlessness, fruitlessness, no value, no defense, and no hope. These are the options. These are the alternatives. And the rest of the Psalms will always enforce and reinforce these truths. Only two groups of people exist in all of humanity. Which group of people are you in this morning? Not because you showed up here. This doesn't define you. What defines you is are you known before God as one of His righteous ones who received blessing from Him, separated unto Him, fruitful for Him, known by him father thank you for this word from this first psalm what a what a blessing this is from you to receive your word our hearts resonate with the truths of your law it is sweeter to us than honey it is more valuable to us than money and possessions it is the light that gives that gives clarity to our path It is the food that brings nourishment to our souls. It is the the mind of heaven you have graciously condescended and delivered to us through revelation in your word. It is wisdom from you. We treasure it. We're grateful for it. We want to be affected by it and changed for your glory to look more like our Savior, your Son, who is at your right hand because he has completed the sacrifice necessary for the salvation of sinners. We gather in His name. We've studied in His name, desiring to exalt Him, to make Him famous in our valley, as we depend upon the Spirit who is left with us, who indwells us, enabling us, empowering us, guiding us, comforting us, convicting us. Change us, we pray, for Christ, because of Christ, and in Christ. And so we ask it in his name. Amen.